Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I happened to be, uh, this, it, it was exact, this same ex- exact weekend, um, except it was the weekend after Thanksgiving uh, two years ago. We were in Portland, Oregon. And we remember when I was there for a friend's uh, installation service. And we remember as, as we were <clears throat> there, all the talk about uh, an incoming snowstorm. Turned out to be one of the worst storms to hit the area in a, in a while. I don't know how long. I didn't go back and look it up. Um, <clears throat> but in that storm, or in, in the aftermath of that storm, a man named James Kim and his wife, you may have heard this story, um, his wife and two daughters, a, a four-year-old daughter and a seven-month-old daughter were returning from Portland to San Francisco, and on their way back to San Francisco, they actually missed their, their cutoff. And um, looking at their map, they, they saw another road that they could take that took them over the mountain and back down into, uh, over into the coast uh, to San Francisco. Well, the thing about this road uh, was that it actually had a gate that was supposed to be locked for the winter. It's a logging road that gets impassable in, um, in, in winter weather. Well, they uh, got on this road and it began to snow on them to the point where it was impassable. And when they decided to turn back, when they realized that they weren't going to make it, they uh, uh, decided to turn back, uh, they got stuck. They, they were stuck there in their car. Well, they assumed that they would settle in for a night, as you can imagine, and that the next day uh, they would uh, be found, rescued, uh, be able to hike their way out, whatever that may be. But one night turned into two, then three, and then a week. They burned all of their tires on their vehicle. They did everything they could to signal for help. And it came to the point where they were living off of, the, the husband and wife were living off of baby food, and the mother was nursing both of her children to keep them alive. So, it got to the point on December 2nd that James Kim left his wife and two daughters to find help. And had he traveled the opposite direction that he traveled, he would have come to a fishing lodge that was closed for the winter, stocked full of wood and canned food, but he went a, a different direction. And wound up traveling roughly as they've reconstructed about 10 miles in a circle, dying of exposure only a half a mile from the car where his wife and two daughters were still waiting for rescue. Can you imagine the horror of such an event? I mean, it's, it's awful. It's an awful thing to happen. And... and I must, I'm a, you guys don't know me very well, some of you don't know me at all, um, but I, I must confess that this is my deepest fear. This, this is actually what keeps me awake at night. It, it, it makes me wonder if someday I will find myself face down, dead from exposure, that I won't really have made it. Do you ever wonder if you're going to, in, in, in the long run, when it's all said and done, you're going to come up short? That all of your efforts will have uh, been noble, will have been praiseworthy, but in the end, not enough. Parents, do you worry about your children 
and the way you've raised them are raising them? Do you wonder if the energy and the effort that you've put into it and the prayers and, and all that you, you, you think about, does it keep you awake at night that somehow all of that effort will come up short? I think all of us in some way or another struggle with the fear that when it's all measured and weighed, it will not be enough. Some of us in this room, I suspect, again, I don't know you, I suspect some of you in this room, that's not your fear. Your fear isn't so much that you'll come up short, but your fear is that your Savior will. The one that's gone out to rescue you in the end. Now, I know we're all, you know, we're all church folks probably, and so we would never admit this publicly to each other, right? I mean, I understand that, that it's maybe a little unseemly to, to talk about the fact that you might even wonder that your hero would come up short. But don't we live and do things as if, at times, that are born really out of a fear that God is going to come up short in our lives? That somehow uh, we trust Him, but we only trust Him so far. And then we begin to manage our lives on our own and begin to do things in order to actually pull authority and power from Him so that we can be assured that we get what we want or we get what we believe is right for us because we're really not convinced that God is going to accomplish all that He says He will. Well, our passage today brings us to a place where we see our own uh, efforts and our own, um, maybe our own fears for what they really are, but then it points to our hope in life and in death. So if you will, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I cannot read the entire passage this morning or I won't, um, but I'll read a portion of it and then uh, we will... Uh, We'll move through it. This is a very familiar passage. It happens to be one of my favorite passage in all the Bible. I think it's it's a powerful image. Uh, my son is eight years old, and I've told this story to him countless times, as you can imagine. So I ask if you're able uh, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1. Now... The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, 
then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's skip over to verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man fled, <coughs> saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in all Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is the uncirc this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. And then over to verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistines arose and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell in, on his face to the ground. And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So he ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that your word uh, corrects us and, and um, puts us back together that it uh, motivates us as we see uh, your uh, hero for us, as we see your work for us, that it's um, the place where your spirit promises to come for us and meet us. So I pray that you would do that this morning, even through uh, this message, and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've set the question up for you, um, and, and I'll, I'll restate it. Do you find yourself living with a latent fear that your life will end up 
somehow heroically yet tragically short. Heroically tragic. Realizing that your fightings within, your fears without, are too much for you to bear. And that you will eventually be overcome by exposure. Do you find your heart slipping in the face of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Do you find yourself hating uh, whatever that particular sin is so much, that, that besetting sin, and, and wondering if that will be your downfall? Do you wonder if there's something else that you must do to gain God? To gain your own salvation? Well, this passage today um, is probably the most familiar passage in all the Scriptures, so it makes it a little difficult to preach because you guys already know it. You know the story. You know the story of David and Goliath. And um, sometimes that makes it hard for you to hear it in a different way. Uh, But I want to draw out some things from this passage that help us think about how to deal with hearts that slip. Hearts that um, fall back. Hearts that wonder, that fear whether or not they will make it. First thing I want to do is just uh, have, a, have the scene set again for us in our mind. The story of Goliath. Uh, one of the things about this passage is that, it, that nowhere else in all the Scriptures do you get this kind of detailed accounting of the armor of a particular soldier. And the reason for that in this passage is, is the narrator wants you to see that Goliath is a formidable foe. That, um, he should, um, that it makes sense that he would engender fear in the hearts of anyone that sees him. When you consider the fact that he's nine feet, over nine feet tall, which we don't know, I don't know what the average height of an Israelite man was at the time, but you can imagine, if you can imagine somebody close to twice your own height. We, we can assume that, they, that, that the average height certainly wasn't the average height of an, uh, of an American male. That it was somewhere closer to five feet and that Goliath would have stood close to twice the height of the average soldier in the Israelite army. We're told that he's, he, he carries a spear and we're told the weight of the spearhead and that is 15 pounds. All in all, he, his armor weighs 126 pounds. He's covered from head to toe in armor. And not only does he, is he covered from head to toe in armor and he has a shield that he carries, but he has someone who walks in front of him with a shield, a tall shield, that would have also been a, a, a point of protection and armament for this man as he went into battle. And, and the narrator begins to uh, walk us through this uh, great uh, giant and all that he, um, he carried in, in, into battle. And he wants us to see that this is real. This is real. This, this is not um, something that uh, we, we, we can really easily just dismiss. And then we see uh, that he puts a proposition for it. And the proposition is for a one-on-one battle. The text actually says that, is, that, that Goliath is the champion of the Philistines. Now that word literally means one who stands between. And we have historical records of this kind of battle. I believe it's the Iliad. I've never read it. I'm sure that's, that's a problem that I've never read the Iliad. But I haven't. Um, but, but the Iliad tells of stories. If you've ever seen... Um, uh, was it Troy? The, the opening battle where, um, where uh, uh, now I'm not, Achilles goes out 
and faces the, uh, the, 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 the champion of the other army. This is what's going on in this passage, that what Goliath calls for is one person to come out who, who will fight him. And as that battle goes between those two individuals, so the battle goes for their respective armies. Everything about uh, the hope of, of victory and hope of, of, of um, I don't know, glory rests then in the champion. And the Philistines are confident in their champion. He comes out and he boasts and he speaks with great pride and he dares anyone from Israel to come forward and to face him. And no one does. I can't imagine. I, 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 wanna, I, I try to think about these things. You ever sit back and think about what would it have been like to have been on that hill that morning when Goliath walks forward? And I don't know, I assume his voice booms. I, I, I picture uh, the dust beginning to rise below, beneath his feet as he steps forward. The text tells us that actually what happens is that what we see in this picture is that over here we have a mountain and the Philistines are camped on this mountain. And over here the Israelites are camped on this mountain. There's a valley between them and they're all lined up in battle array and out steps this one man. And, and the picture is that they're going to come down into this valley and the two armies are going to sit on this hill and watch and see what happens. And as that battle goes, so goes the, 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 whole, um, the whole victory or defeat of the army. And yet not one person is found to face Goliath. Not one. I can't imagine what it would have been like to, uh, uh, to have been there and to have been watching that and, and to be praying for someone to step forward. Can you imagine the embarrassment, the shame and the guilt that would have rested on the shoulders of the Israelite soldiers and their armies as no one stood forward on their behalf? No one. And we're told this happens 40 days. 40 days. 40 days, morning and evening, Goliath gets up. He puts on his battle. We're told that the Israelite army puts on their battle array. They, they, they strap on their swords and get their, their shields and get ready for battle. It says they actually shout the war cry. I don't know what that is, but, but you can imagine what that would have been like getting ready for battle to work yourself up, to go to hand-to-hand -hand combat, to, to be in that moment. And then one person comes out, and because of his taunts, you leave the battlefield. The shame and guilt of that must have been overwhelming. We, uh, we know that, well, I, I'll, ask it, I'll ask it rhetorically. Who should have been the person to go forward? Saul, right? Saul, as a matter of fact, Saul was chosen. You go back and read chapter 9, verse 16. Saul was chosen for this very reason to deliver God's people from the Philistines. This was his purpose. As a matter of fact, one of the things we know about Saul and one of the reasons that the Israelites wanted him to be king is because he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul was the, the, the obvious person, the king, to go forward and to fight the champion of the Philistines, yet he didn't. 
Another uh, maybe obvious choice would have been Jonathan in chapter 14. Jonathan and his shield bearer take on an entire garrison of Philistines and win. Yet evidently, Jonathan could not muster the, the um, courage or strength to do this also. And I just want us to see that on the people of God in this moment was heaped deep shame. Deep, deep uh, guilt. And as a matter of fact, we're supposed to understand that the kingdom of God hangs in the balance. That this isn't just a battle between a champion of one nation and another, but this is, this is, this is why, by the way, that David keeps calling him an uncircumcised Philistine. And this is why the word Philistine is peppered throughout. Because what we're to see is that this is not just a war between nations. This is a war that involves the very hope of the people of God. And no one is found worthy capable, willing to fight Goliath. Look in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul and all Israel are brought under this shame. The word there for dismayed is actually a word that um, could be translated, they shattered. That, that under the weight of the taunts of one man, their hearts shattered. I picture this as um, like those, those Christmas balls, right? That we all put on our Christmas trees. And I, I know that every year there's going to be a few that get stuck down in that box and that just trying to get them out of the sleeve, I'm going to break it into pieces. You ever dropped one on a floor, you know what happens to it. And, and what we see under the taunts of, of Goliath is that their hearts shatter. And no one is found worthy. Well, David enters the scene. And it's, it's interesting as, as he enters the scene because up until this point, David's been passive. David enters the scene and, and uh, everywhere before he's been out tending sheep, doing the bidding of his brother, uh, doing the bidding of his father. Uh, when he's the last brother of, of eight to be brought in to be uh, uh, to, to before the, uh, the prophet Samuel. He, he's just out being told what to do. And throughout this, the, the narrative, as we watch David in chapter 16 and 17, he, he is passive up until the point that he hears the taunts of Goliath. And then he, he begins to become active. And he begins to ask what is going to happen for the one who kills and takes away this reproach from Israel. And everything about this is to understand that this is a reproach on God's people. That they really are under the weight of shame and guilt. And he begins to ask, what will be done for the one who removes this uh, reproach? Now, I want to stop just briefly and, and give a little aside. Because here's, here's where we, I think, maybe get off track um, when it comes to, to understanding the Scriptures. Uh, what we tend to do is we tend to then begin to observe David. And we begin to observe what he's done. And I've even heard, you know, taking the five smooth stones that he takes out of his pouch, uh, takes with him, and making those five headings for a sermon application on how we're to be like David. Um, I, I know that for my son, he watches a little animation, animated film about it. Not, I'm not trying to, trying to, to belittle these things. 
But the, the punchline of the animated film is that even though you're little, God can do great things through you. And so my son is under the, the, the perception, if he listens to that, is that this passage is about how he can defeat his giants. And so we begin to then take on uh, the, 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 the message or, or watch David and begin to try to apply principles in order for us to slay giants and to deal with our own shattered hearts. And that is absolutely not the point of this passage. It's not in any way. And, as, and what I want you to see is that the, the, that way of thinking that way of thinking about your own salvation, about how to, how to defeat your enemies, is the thing that gave Israel Saul. That Saul is the personification in Israel at their own efforts at self-salvation. It's not really anything profound. We know that, that he's their chosen king. And God says, okay, because you've chosen him as your king, he will be a king like the king of the nations and he will oppress you and he will not deliver you. This is not the path we take. We are not looking for some sort of survival manual. Our hearts need something else. And this is where the text wants to take us. David begins to act, and he acts, in a, and, and the, the narrator points out what we're, we often miss about David. Now, I just want you to see it um, in the text. I read it. We get this, uh, David gets, gets the, the, he tries on, on Saul's armor, and it doesn't fit. He takes his, his uh, shepherd's tools with him, a slingshot and a staff. And he goes out to meet Goliath. And there's a statement in here that when, when you read it, if you're not careful, you'll just pass over to you go, hmm, that's interesting. Why does he say that? Verse 42, and when the Philistine looked at David and saw him, he hated him. He disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Now, if you're not careful, it's really easy to, to, to read right over that. And when I read it, I thought, well, what, why, why do I care that he's a youth? And that he's handsome and ruddy. I had to go look up ruddy. And I couldn't tell you what it means still. But um, he's ruddy and handsome in appearance. And it seems like this sort of cast off detail. Now why would an, uh, the author throw in a detail like that? I mean, you, have to, you have to really ask yourself this. You're in the middle of describing a battle. Everything has been set for the, the conflict. Everything has been set up for what's going to happen when David goes forward and fights Goliath. And the, the narrator, the writer of the story wants, wants you to know that David is a good looking man. Why? It doesn't make any sense unless you know where that phrase is used the only other time. That's in chapter 16, verse 12. All the brothers have been brought to Saul and God says, no, no. No. And David enters the, the house and the text tells us that he's ruddy and handsome and a youth. And what the narrator wants you to see is that David does not step forward as an example of how you fight your giants. He doesn't. He steps forward as the anointed one. The narrator puts this phrase in here so you go, oh yeah, 
I remember this phrase. I remember how this, how David was described when he was brought in to be anointed as king. This is the anointed king. This is God's king. This is the one that God promised that would be a king after his own heart, that would be better than Saul, that would actually deliver his people. And, 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 and the, the author, God himself wants you to see that you are to look at David and understand God's king. God's anointed one, God's hero, God's champion now steps forward to fight the one who has brought reproach on his people. But if that's not enough, David even understands it. Look in verse 47 what he says. Well, look at verse 46. I love that David trash talks back. Uh, that David doesn't, uh, that David doesn't just sit back and, and, uh, he actually, he, he comes back at Goliath and says, I'm gonna give your body to the beasts of the earth and I'm gonna scatter your armies. David says, I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Then look at what he says. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear. Everywhere else in this, this, this uh, story, the, the army's been described as the ranks of Israel, the armies of, of God. But here, this particular word, this assembly, and what David is, is doing is he's, he's, he's facing Goliath and he understands that as he faces him, that there's this, this whole group of people behind him. And he calls them the assembly. This word brought over into the Greek is the word that we get church from. Ekklesia. It's a very particular word about God's congregation, about His people gathered for worship. And David says, look, I am doing this so that all of these people over here may know who God is and that it, who it is that fights for them and delivers them. David goes forward as the anointed king and he fights for God's people. And I want you to just see what they do. What do they do? Where are you in this passage? If you're not David, where are you? You're the assembly. You're the person with a shattered heart. You're the person who is unable or unwilling and unwilling. Unable and unwilling to deliver yourself. And out steps the king. Outsteps the Lord's anointed. Outsteps the one who has been appointed by God to, to fight for His people. And He does so. And He wins while you do nothing. And until you and I understand that victory is ours while we do nothing, then we will constantly live under the fear of coming up short because we know we come up short. I, 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 I pray that in this room when I talk about the fear of coming up short, that all of you know what that means. Because even the most mature among us in here this morning know our sins very well. It's one of the definitions of maturity, right? We know our weaknesses. We know our failings. 
And until we understand that God must send forward someone who fights and delivers us while we do nothing, then we have no hope in the world. And when we begin to see that He has sent that one and He's worthy and that He has conquered and that everything about our blessing and benefit and everything we would desire and hope for from God has been secured because of what God has done in His hero King, go read Ephesians 1, that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because of what Jesus has done for you because of what God's appointed king has done for you that there is nothing lacking in what you possess because you are in Christ until you begin to understand that we will always shrink back in fear and do nothing or we'll live by our own efforts so David goes forward and he fights uh, on behalf of his people. And, and again, I want to put myself back in that place and being on that hill and watching as, as this, this boy comes out with no armor and a slingshot to face Goliath. And how, how my hopes might have risen. I don't know. Maybe I would have... I don't know, oh boy, we're in trouble now. I mean, that's kind of what Saul says, right? When he says, you know, he says, God be with you or whatever he says. It's kind of like, good luck because this doesn't look good for you. I don't know. What, what would have been the anticipation in that moment as you watched the shepherd boy go forward as the champion? What, what an image of, of, of salvation and what God wants you to see about what He's done for you as you sit there and you, your hope is placed in this one. I can't imagine what that would be like. As a matter of fact, that's what I opened up with. I live in, in just a sneaking fear of placing all my hope in one champion. I hedge my bets. And David steps out. He fights, slings a stone, kills Goliath, cuts off his head. Son loves that part. And at that moment, at that moment, the people of God can no longer Sit. Look at what it says they do. David prevailed over the Philistine I'm in verse 50 with a sling and a stone, and they struck down the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in his hand. David ran and stood over the Philistine and took a sword and drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him and cut off his head. Verse 52. Well, f- finishing that. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they ran. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron into their own territory, Gath, capital city, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way as far as Gath and Ekron. The people of Israel then came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. This is a picture of what it looks like for you to go forward in the midst of even having a weak, fragile heart. Because as you see, as you see what your king has done for you, you get up. You arise. You arise with a shout that you are encouraged and emboldened that you go forward and that you actually, the church actually plunders 
the kingdom of darkness, because of what our hero has done for us. And it's not until we begin to observe and, and believe and take hold of the fact that our King, that Jesus has accomplished salvation while we do nothing and that everything is ours in Him and our security and hope is sure. Until we see that, we will live on the sidelines in fear. See, understanding that Jesus has done it all does not make you passive. Not at all. It actually makes you active. It actually strengthens you in ways that you would never be strengthened before. I have a friend who tells a story of his son who had a, uh, had, a, had, a had a bad dream. Son, my, my, my son's age, seven years old at the time. And um, he... Uh, he, he comes to his father, middle of the night, um, they're talking through it, and he, his, my friend asks his son, did, did, you, did you pray? Did you pray? And, and this is what his son said. He said, I, I prayed, Daddy, and I tried, but I could not keep God in my thoughts. That this fear in this little boy's mind was pressing in so hard and so real that even as he prayed and he struggled to keep God in his mind, he couldn't. Do you ever feel that way? And what this passage teaches us is that your security is not whether you keep God in your mind. Your security is that you have been secured in the hands of God Himself. That it's not about you holding on to God. It's about God rescuing you. It's about God holding on to you. It's about God who secures you. And until we rest in the knowledge and faith of that, then we will live afraid that our heroes come up short. Because in, the, in reality, if we live without that, we're our hero. At least partially, we're our hero. A few years ago, I'll close with this. Um, I had the, we, my, my father-in-law travels a lot. He, um, he gave us frequent flyer miles for our 10th anniversary to go to um, anywhere we wanted. So we picked Italy and, uh, and spent some time then in uh, Corsica with him, his, he and his wife, um, and my brother-in-law and his wife met. We all met, went to Corsica, and, and my son was with us. He was four. I always forget. He was four. Um, and, you know, the, the Mediterranean there in Corsica, the, a lot of inlets with very calm, uh, calm water, places for my son to play without fear of the ocean. But the last day, uh, everybody was cleaning up the house. My son wanted to go to the beach uh, one last time before we left, and we, could, we didn't have time to go to one of the other beaches, so we went to the one at the bottom of the hill. And it happened to be more exposed to, uh, uh, which is more exposed. There wasn't a little cove there. And he was playing, and, and as he was playing, there was a shelf that was about this tall uh, that, that, that had a six inches to a foot of water in it. 
But then it dropped off very quickly down to over my son's head. So we sat there, I read a book, and he uh, played on that little shelf. Well, as we sat there, a storm arose out over the ocean which brought the, the, the tide in. And the waves began to get stronger. My son, he was just, you know, he he was just running as fast as he could up and down this little shelf. But he didn't, he he wasn't paying attention to what was going on. Well, I noticed that this was happening, and so I get up to to go down because I'm afraid that he's going to get hit by one of these waves as they're coming in and get pulled down this shelf. Well, as soon as I get close to him, not all the way there, <coughs> a wave hits him, knocks him off balance. And he begins to fall down into this, this, uh, this hole. And the next wave is coming over his head. And it's split-second moment, but I'll never forget this moment. I'll never forget it's the first time as a parent that I've seen that fear in my son's eyes. It was horrible. It was awful. Because he knew that he was at the, at the, the, the mercy of a force that he could not control. And he knew that if he was pulled out off this shelf and that next wave engulfed him, that he could not swim. It was over his head. And you guys, I mean, you guys know that, the, the, what a riptide's like. Once that, once that's over his head, I'm now in fear because I don't know where I'm gonna have to pull him out of the water. And you can imagine what I do. I don't, I don't offer him suggestions. I don't give him swimming lessons. I don't talk to him about God's control in his life. It's important. At that moment, I grab him. I grabbed him and I pulled him to my chest. And I pulled him out of the water. And he asked me this. He says, he said, Daddy, will you always be there to rescue me? Now, I know my limits. So I said, as long as I can, son. As long as I can. But what you've got to know, what you've got to know, is that Jesus that David doesn't stand forward in this passage and Jesus doesn't stand forward in the Scriptures for you as an example of how you survive in the wilderness. He pulls you out. He pulls you to safety. He embraces you and He places His name upon you and everything that is His is now yours. Jesus, your great hero king, rescues you in every way. And that allows you, the people of God, to arise. To arise with joy. To arise with singing. To arise with thanksgiving. To arise and go to your neighbor and tell them about Jesus. To arise in, in the fear and uncertainty of whatever, I don't know, our, our financial markets or whatever it is that's weighing on your mind that makes you worried. That allows you to arise and trust that somehow in, in the midst of all of this that God is at work and that He will not forsake you because of His Son. Amen.